0: Welcome to Step Zero, where we learn about the people behind the amazing work that we see. How do they push through Step Zero and launch their passion projects? Today we have Tori. She's the author of No Big Deal, where she shares her journey of healing from her traumatic experience of being sexually violated 15 years ago. She has lit the path for other victims to realize that it was and is a big deal, and that there is something we can do about it. Let's hear how Tori became a leader in changing the way parents and children prevent similar trauma, and how writing played a big part of her journey. Thank you so much for joining me, Tori! You launched your book called No Big Deal, and, of course, I wanted to hear your journey as a writer and as the founder of Homeopathy first. Maybe you can
1: start off by sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, I love that. Well, yes, homeopathy first is my first business. And that came from my first profession, which I worked as a physician assistant for more than 10 years in a family practice office. And it's interesting when I look back at my life, I'm 42 years old, and I feel like I entered into this path of being a healer for other people because of the pain in my own life, right? So when I was young, my parents divorced and I had been doing gymnastics already for about seven years. When my parents divorced at age 10, I started gymnastics as a little tiny toddler. And when they divorced, that was kind of a big part of the divorce. Like, am I going to keep doing gymnastics? Because it was like who I was. Right. Fast forward five more years and I was in pain, you know, I was 15, I weighed a whole 115 pounds, you know, but that's heavy for gymnastics and my, my ankles were hurting and my wrists were hurting and I had low back pain and I, I actually got diagnosed with hypothyroidism that year. And so I had a lot of pain and physical ailments and felt this is not fun. And so I wanted to help other people feel better. So I went into, you know, pre-med undergrad and went to grad school a few years later studied physician assistant studies um, because I wanted to be a mom and I wanted something that wasn't as committing as an MD. And the first job that I landed was with a doctor who had been practicing homeopathy for more than 20 years. And so I had this really amazing intro into homeopathy and a mentor with it in an allopathic family practice office. I could use either Western medicine or homeopathy. Yeah, so it, it led me to starting my own business um, because homeopathy actually doesn't fit in a Western medical model very well, and so then I had my own homeopathic practice. And then the book has always been kind of in the back of my head. I, I did a minor in English in undergrad, and the book is a memoir. It's it's a life story, and it it was the most powerful story that I had. You know, it wasn't it wasn't the happiest story that I had. In fact, it was the deepest, darkest, hardest story that I had. But a few years ago, something happened at a church that I was going to, and it was very similar to what had happened to me, and it really ripped the Band-Aid off of my trauma. And I realized, for one thing, I have more to heal on this topic, and sharing my story was helpful to other people. And so that's what kind of led to like, okay, if I'm going to write a book, as much as I don't want it to be this book, (laughs) this is the book I have to write, you know? in a lot of ways, like the book is my ultimate healing journey. You know, it is about my healing journey, but the writing of it itself was the final piece of the healing of that story, at least.
0: Mm -hmm. And when did you have the idea that writing a book would help you in this journey of healing? Because there are so many different avenues, but how did you realize that you wanted to write and share this in the form of a book?
1: Well, I think anybody who goes into the healing professions, like their success is when they can see something they do or say help someone else. Right. And I had started verbally sharing my story quite often. And two people that I shared my story with then went and made police reports about their perpetrator. So my story is of sexual violation. Uh, My gymnastics coach was sexually violating myself as well as a teammate. And we 15 years after it happened, went back to the police and made police reports. And a year and a half after that went to a five day long jury trial and he ended up in prison for 43 years. So that story, the part about like actually addressing it and going back to the police and all the good things that came after I owned my story was the part I started sharing after a man at my church was arrested on very similar acts so i just started to get a lot more verbal about my story and in that i saw the way people would have these kind of like aha moments about their own stories or something that had happened to them and the fact that those two people went forward and made police reports based on my sharing my story i was like wow it would be really good for me to write this down. You know, it's a hopeful story and there aren't very many hopeful stories on this topic.
0: Right, right. And I love how you're able to pinpoint three different effects that are happening at the same time as you're sharing the story. Though you're hurting every time you share this trauma, you also feel that you're healing and simultaneously you're inspiring others to speak out about their experiences and also figure out ways they can heal too. So, When was the day you were like, okay, let me start writing this. Let me write the first page down. Like you have this whole story to write. How do you even
1: start? Absolutely. That's a great question. So in November, they have, it's something about writing a novel in a month. So a lot of people get together and write in November and it's like 1500 or 2000 words a day or something. So then you get a 50,000 word novel by the end of November. For some reason that really appealed to me of like, just bust it out, right? Like, let's just get this thing done. And I knew it wasn't a novel for one thing, but I knew that all these other people were going to be writing at the same time as me. And I kind of wanted to like the ride the wave of their writing energy. So it was November of 2016, November 1st, I sat down and I think the first day I wrote a letter to my perpetrator, so he's in prison and I never mailed it or anything, but I just wrote a letter to him of like, to kind of start working on my emotions about it. Like, what did I still have in me about this story? And then the next day I would write about one of the things that I used to heal through this story. So, you know, I used some traditional means of healing. I went to a therapist for a while, but I also used a ton of other things like rock climbing and skiing and hiking and nature. So each day I would write either a letter to him or like a blog post type, you know, rock climbing was healing towards to me or, you know, whatever, whatever it was. I wrote about yoga and I wrote about my dog, you know, like all these different things that you put into your life because they nurture you and they nourish you and they make you feel better. So at the end of November of 2016, I had about 21 or 22, like I had a good chunk of Material And so that told me, okay, because I I honestly, I didn't know if I remembered enough to write a book about it, um, or if it was like enough compelling stories to put into an actual book. So I took December off because I didn't want to live in that story over Christmas. And then January, I started writing again, and more in like a story format, I was this age, and this happened, and you know, like more of like a chronological order. And the year prior, I had met some good friends who were book coaches. And one in particular, I had had a couple conversations with her. And I knew if I was going to hire someone to help me write this story, it was going to be her. And she happened to have a retreat, basically. She called it her message matrix retreat. And she pulls stories out and, like, gives you an outline. And that week was amazing because. I knew the story, but I didn't know how to write the story. Right. And so she helped me put myself in it and she kept saying, you know, you need more, you need more sense. You need, what did it look like? What did it feel like? What did it feel in your body? And I was really hesitant to go there because that's where the healing I think really happens is when you put yourself back into the emotions and the physical feelings of when those things happened that's when the real transformation can happen. And so she helped me to do that. And so in April of 2017, I wrote the introduction in the first five chapters. And then I kept writing a chapter a week and I was basically done with it by July of 2017.
0: Wow. So it was having the right support, the right questions asked, the environment to reopen that box and to go through all the feelings you didn't want to, but had to in order to write the story. But from there, you were able to go full speed ahead because you finished that book in just a couple months.
1: Yeah. Basically, yeah, it took me about three months. Once I saw how to do it, it wasn't like a template, but it was just like your emotions, like the the things going through your head, you can put in italics. And it was just interesting. Like I'm an avid reader. Like I'm reading two or three books a week sometimes, you know, but reading it and writing it are so different. I hadn't written like this ever. You know, I hadn't written memoir. I hadn't written like a book ever. And once I figured out like kind of that, the way to write it. I literally would just put myself back in, okay, I'm 10 years old. This is the day I would pick a day that I very clearly remembered. So it starts out with, I think the day my parents told me they were getting divorced Um, because, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a memory you can't erase. And then I could work from there of like the, how it happened and the, what I was thinking and what I was feeling and and what I was smelling, you know, And, and it was amazing how much memory comes back when you do like really put yourself back into your story. What was fascinating to me, too, by the end of it, is how I did not change any of the facts of my story, but I changed absolutely the way I feel about my story. So the memories are all still there, and it's still the same story that it was, but physically and emotionally, I've completely changed how that story is in my body now. What was that
0: shift or the feeling that it changed to?
1: Literally, I, I know that trauma can be stored in the body, like in your physical tissues, you can store trauma. And whenever I would think about this story, I could feel it in my left hip. Like there was like a big, dark, deep pit that I could see, you know, in my mind's eye, in my hip. And it would be more prevalent at some different times and then it would kind of fade. But now it's gone you know? So it's just like, it's not there anymore. And there's other places where I kind of hold tension and I would definitely hold tension about that story that it just feels different in my body. It was a slow process because I can't be like that day, that's when it disappeared. But through the writing, because, you know, really the book's been done for about a year now, it took me this long to publish it because I had hired a self-publishing package to help me because I had never written a book before. And I thought that would just be really helpful. And they kind of wanted me to change my story too much. Like I wanted to tell this from a nonfiction memoir kind of way. And I'm happy to change names of people that weren't key players. But they they really, from the beginning, kind of said, you should take a pen name if you're going to write this book. And I, it wasn't, it didn't hold the power for me. I mean, I can't really say I wrote this book if it's a pen name, right? And I wanted to speak about it and I wanted to build this movement towards prevention. Why did they want you to change it to a pen name? Well, I think it's just, you know, legality issues and invasion of privacy and things like that. So I I understand where they're coming from, especially with, you know, other victims in the case and family members and things like that. I knew that I could trust my family members weren't going to be upset about it. But my perpetrators, family members, potentially, you know, there's a lot of people that could potentially think that I shouldn't be writing about this. But I think that's another societal, you know, thing that comes along with sexual abuse is like, you don't talk about it. You don't ruin people's reputations, you don't. And that's unfortunately why one in four girls is going to be sexually violated by the time she's 18, because we don't talk about it enough. At the beginning of the writing, it was so important to me, the very specific places, details, all that stuff, because I knew I couldn't write it true to my heart if I was fictionalizing it at the same time. And I didn't think that my readers would understand the way I felt and the emotions of it and and get wrapped into the story if I was fictionalizing all of it. That's how I had to write it. It's
0: like diluting the story. And that's so unfair to you and to what the story is.
1: Exactly. So through that process, what was really interesting about it is they have what they call a content evaluation, and then it would come back to me. And the first time, it was stuff that I was very on board with. I need to get you know, my other victim's permission. I need to get... I, put a poem in there. I need to get the author's permission, things that were very straightforward. And then the second round, it was like another list of these people you need to get their permission, even if you use a pseudonym. That made sense to me too. And I and it actually made sense to the point that I wanted to have conversations with some of the people whose stories I used in the book. And I did that. But then the third time around, I just realized they're making me feel shameful about my story. Like that's the whole problem with sexual abuse stories is that the victims feel ashamed. And that's why they don't come forward. And so in this, where I felt like I didn't have shame around this story, then the third go around of them being like, well, you really need to get, you know, either get this person's permission or change the details here. I was like, dude, you're making me feel shameful about this story Mm -hmm. again. And I'm done with that. So I pulled out of that contract and it was probably actually a really good thing for me and then i put together a team of people that just kind of naturally came into my life and i published it through create space myself was there any point in time during the process you felt like quitting
0: or you didn't want to
1: follow through with this book <laughs> absolutely i mean there's there are a lot of people whose stories intertwine with mine you know nobody has nobody's an island and when i felt like i was potentially hurting those people or this, what I was doing was impacting them because I don't really believe that I'm hurting them. It's their unhealed wounds that are coming back up. You know, I think it needed this time to process. And the other really interesting piece to the story is that my father passed away in April. He knew about the book and I had talked to him about writing the book, but I, I didn't really want him to read the book. You don't really want your father reading about the details of your abuse. And he did like support me when I went to trial and everything. And but when he passed, it really kind of gave me this permission to just put it out there, you know, and I so I think there might have been a little bit of a block in myself about that. And I know what was really interesting, too, is going through his house and kind of finding things. He had the newspaper clippings of when my coach was put in prison. So I know he was proud of me for doing that. You know, I don't think he had any shame around what I had done. But, you know, as a female, I think you don't want the men in your life to think of you sexually. When you say I was sexually violated, then they're seeing you as a sexual being and not as their little daughter. You know, I don't know how much that played into it, but I feel like there were all these different like kind of doors that closed and opened to let me get to the point where I was ready to put it out into the world. The first time I ever shared the story <clears throat> like i had it in a bunch of different word documents it was like chapter 1 chapter 2 you know all these word documents and i and i sent it out to like two people and i that was probably the most terrifying part right of like giving it to somebody who maybe even already knows the story but it's like a painting you know like it's it's a creative piece that you could definitely be very um criticized for for sure but also just like it's so much a part of who you are that you're putting this thing into the world and and you don't want to feel like you're doing it wrong i
0: just love how you have the sense of always remaining true to yourself and to share that with the world how did you stay so grounded in who you are and have the
1: confidence to maintain that through every aspect of your life awesome question uh I like to be in nature as much as possible. That is definitely one of my pillars for sure. We live in Golden, Colorado, and so I have a trail half mile from my house and I can walk up a mesa and take my dog there as often as I can. I have a phenomenal husband who I met the week before I made the police report. So myself and my friend from my team who was the other victim, we both met our husbands the week that we made the police report, which I think is really telling to like what happens to you when you own your truth, good things start coming your way. Like it just opens these doors and and lets you be the person you're meant to be instead of hiding under this facade of like, I look great on the outside, but I'm a total mess on the inside. <laughs> so I have an amazing husband who. Is super supportive of my entrepreneurial wanderings, basically. And then I have two kiddos too. And not to say that like I love them to death, they're not necessarily like a support piece for me, right? They're more of a drain sometimes, but (laughs) they're what I'm living for and they're absolutely the reason that I wrote the book too, when I really look at it, you know, when I was practicing medicine, I would see parents who had either a big trauma as a teenager or had a child as a teenager, right? And when a parent has a child as a teenager and their child reaches that age that they were, I've seen a lot of like boiling turmoil come up, right? Because I feel like They're not cognizant of it, but they're resentful of the fact that their child is getting to have this life that they didn't have because of them. So I didn't want to get to the age that I was when my abuse happened and be like subconsciously resentful of my children for not having this big trauma in their lives. And so that piece of me knowing, like, I want to heal this as much as I possibly can before they reach that age. And I think when that man got arrested at my church how triggered I was from that showed me, okay, wait, I have some more work to do, (laughs) you know?
0: I think it takes so much strength to even acknowledge that. Some people, they would remain triggered and continue to shut that out. But you were able to acknowledge that something's off and you're not happy with that. How did you first approach it and take action
1: on trying to heal? Yeah, that's a good question, too. And I think the word you used is strength. The word that I would use is self-awareness, right? It is a strength like to actually deal with it. But first, you have to acknowledge like this might be tied to that. So when we go back in my story to the day where I was like, maybe I need to deal with the gymnastics coach story, you know, I was 30 and I had called off an engagement. I had had good, you know, year and a half, two year relationships. This was the first time I'd been engaged. And when that fell apart, I believe it was the first time that I owned like this isn't something wrong with him. This is something wrong with me. And so started seeing a therapist, went to a male specifically because I was like, I think I have issues with men and I think I want to work with a man about it. The third time I went to him, I took the letters from my gymnastics coach that I had held on to for 15 years. And there were three of them that were really incriminating. Like, it wrote, you know, he wrote in his handwriting, I kissed you, you know, I kissed her, and all these things. So I gave them to him. And then I ran away to the bathroom and I was like, ah, you know, like, read these, I'll be back. And when I came in there, I just want to know if you think this is affecting my relationships, right? And he said, wait a second, like, how old was this guy? How old were you? He's like, I need to make a CPS report. So at this time, I'm a physician assistant. I'm a mandated reporter myself, but I couldn't apply my knowledge to myself. And that's where the book, the title comes from, right? The title is No Big Deal. I just felt like this was no big deal compared to the stories I've heard from my friends, from my patients. What happened to me was not that big of a deal. Um so when he said he was going to make a CPS report that was pivotal for me and I was like okay wait whoa and so then I went and started looking up the statute of limitations and I saw that they were still we were still able to make a report and have something happen help- from it so then I reached out to my friend because I was like if I'm like I wonder how she's doing basically I mean I hadn't talked to her in 12 years because we were triggering to one another. Like it was just something we couldn't deal with. And so when I reached out to her, we had very parallel lives. I said like, Hey, have you been to a therapist or anything? And she was like, no. And I started kind of letting her know where I was at. And I think because of my healing profession, I had come a lot further already based on knowing like how people heal and watching people's stories. There was an element like she and I had very different levels of trauma She and I had very different approaches to handling it, but she absolutely, when I said like, Hey, you know, he was now by that time, my coach was a chiropractor and a physician assistant, and I knew he had access to people. And I knew that if we made a police report and he still was hurting people, it would be useful. If we made a police report and he wasn't hurting people anymore, I didn't think anything would come of it because it was such an old case. I basically tried to say to her like, Hey, let's just say this. Let's just go tell the police because we need to protect those girls. If there's girls from our gymnastics center going to him as patients, like I can't, I can't have that not on my watch. Is what I said, (laughs) like, I can't do this. Um, So there's a lot of self-awareness, right. Of like Mm -hmm. being able to say like, I'm not good at this whole thing called relationship. Maybe it does tie back to the fact that when I was 15, an adult in my life who I looked up to as a father figure stuck his tongue in my mouth you know, and he was married at the time. He was also abusing my girlfriend. So like all these different factors of like boundary crushing experiences, Mm -hmm. you know, when you hear from your college roommates that they've had a rape already, or that they've been physically abused already, you start to downplay your own trauma, but that's not useful to anybody, right? Mm -hmm. It's not useful for us to trauma compare. And it's not useful for us to say, well, that's just not that big of a deal versus this, because none of it should be happening. Mm
0: -hmm. So you had this, self-awareness and you accepted that it happened and that you're feeling this way. How did you take the step in doing something about it? Like, what can I do today? Making a plan, whatever that may be.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And you actually asked too, that did I feel like quitting? And yes, like many, many times. So even from back when we were like, okay, we're going to go make the police report you know, it took a year and a half to go to trial because it took seven, six or seven months before someone else came forward. So there was so much waiting game and like, what's going on? The court system would say, okay, your court date is this. And then they were like, oh wait, no, he's going to take a plea. And then he didn't take the plea. Okay. Your court date is this. And it was just up and down and totally crazy. And there were so many times where we could have just been like, okay, we're out, you know, I'm not doing this. That said, I was very blown away that he didn't take a plea deal because he could have gotten four years and 15 years as a registered sex offender and he ended up getting 10 times that. But that's one thing that I see people kind of go round and round about the why of it. Like, well, why did he do this? And why is he doing that? Well, like you can't explain their brains because their brains have something going on. Getting stuck in that why of it is not useful, but definitely like, I think I was detached enough from the physical area of it too, because I had moved from Ohio to California I could kind of say like, that's over there and I'm over here. Like, this is me and this is my life now. I didn't stay in my small town. I didn't stay, you know, super close to parents or friends from that day and age. I look back and kind of mourn that loss. Like I don't have friends from gymnastics that much anymore or anything because I kind of had to shut that all out. But I also think that that also made it easier for me to go back and address it because I didn't feel like that's my whole life there. And I don't want to blow up my whole life. My life was somewhere else already. And then in the writing process, the giving up parts were definitely more like how is this impacting other people but I really truly felt the whole time, like every time I wanted to quit or give up or just say it's done, I really felt like the book would do more good than harm. It was gonna help way more people than it was gonna hurt. And that was my beacon, my light at the end of the tunnel that I kept looking at.
0: I love that so much. And just having that guide you through the hardest moments, I think it's amazing. I know you shared that having that light at the end of the tunnel really helped you, But is there any other advice you could give for people who want to
1: start their passion project? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that everybody right now, like if you're alive, you have an amazing toolkit of like how you keep doing the things that you're doing. Right. For a while, I did a lot of yoga and I do a lot of rock climbing and everybody has their self-care toolkit. That's one thing. The new business that I've created is called Open Space. And I think one of the hardest things that we do Right now, as we pack our lives so full that you don't have any space for doing a passion project or writing or I mean, even if it's just like miracle mornings, like you get up and you do 10 minutes of meditation and you do 10 minutes of writing and you do 10 minutes of exercise, those types of healthy habits. Can open up a whole world of new things. I feel like everybody has to assess right now what do you use that helps you get the things done that you really love? And if you're not getting any of those things done, like what can you take away right now and what can you put in that is going to help you to do that one thing? And maybe it's just 10 minutes of journaling every day. Figure out what's holding you back. You know, like if you're not looking inward, you're never going to figure out why you are where you are. Everybody's different, I guess, is my vague answer, but just take that first step, whatever it may be. And I do really highly recommend getting some guidance. I like the word guidance because... I've worked in western medicine which is very you know traditional and you know meds and surgeries and all that but I've worked in homeopathy which is more space right there's more time to talk about things we go back into stories and kind of hear your whole story I don't think that there's one specific modality for healing I think that if you meet a homeopath and you meet an acupuncturist and you meet a therapist and you like the acupuncturist best you go to them you know so you kind of listen to yourself and your, your intuition, follow the path that you're led on. But I think that you need guides that you can't do it all on your own, especially depending on what, you know, what your stuff is, what's going on in the back of your head. You need somebody to help guide you along and and pull you forward to that light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend people do to find that guide or to find that right person? right? I think so many people are, they're okay, right? I was okay. My life was good. I had a house, I had a dog, I had a good job. If you would have seen me, you would have said that girl's successful. She's great, you know? But when that engagement got called off, That's not the life I wanted. I needed that like tipping point, but I think everybody should be pushing themselves outside their comfort zone more than what we are. I think there's so many people who are so comfortable with their life that they don't push themselves out into that realm of the possibility and the thriving and the like amazing life they can have. You know, with the current political stuff going on, I think eyes are opening up a little bit more. I totally believe that any societal changes start from single person changes. you know. So if we as a society believe that it's not that big of a deal that kids are being sexually abused, it's going to continue to happen. But in order to change the society's belief of that, we as people have to get more comfortable talking about it and teaching our kids about healthy sexuality and all those things. So every single person is responsible to take care of their own selves and make themselves as healthy and happy and productive as they can be. And then that leads to the greater societal change.
0: Mm-hmm. Completely agree. <laughs> and I love how you're so authentic and unapologetically yourself. Like even though people want to make you feel shameful, you don't let them influence you. And I think you're such a great role model for all of us. For real. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Oh, well, thank you. I think I learned so much about what it means to have self-awareness and how to handle things that hurt you. It's not a matter of shutting it away, but addressing it in a healthy way.
1: Yeah. Build your self-care toolkit for sure, but then reach out for help when you need it because it's amazing what other people in community will do for you. And right and we have to build that. Like, we have to reach out and ask for help and be more, you know, intentional about it just based on how separated out we all are these days. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. being intentional about it. Yeah. Love that. Thank you so
0: much, Tori. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you, Vicki. Thanks for listening. And you can get Tori's book, No Big Deal, on Amazon. Be sure to subscribe to Step Zero to hear more on how people launch their passion projects.